0: It's me, Jasper William Cartwright, and I am joined today by...
2: Uh, Jeremy Cobb. My pronouns are he, him, but uh, Tyler F. calls me Ichacob Crane, the headless GM. Ichacob Crane, the headless GM. It's a quality Wow. One
0: yeah that's yeah that's top shelf stuff that's really really good that's setting the uh the bar
2: pretty high um Mm -hmm. for for so high that it knocked my head off (laughs) yeah (laughs) it literally (laughs) took your head I off (laughs) yeah so high that i yeah whatever happened my head's gone whatever whatever happens it's gone it's completely gone
0: Um, well, we are very excited today to welcome our next guest to the Three Black Halflings stage, the stadium of of, of halflings, uh, and, and an incredible guest who we've been, uh, and especially you, you, Jeremy, have been telling us we needed to be having on for so, so long. Uh, so please, everyone welcome the uh, creator of Coyote and Crow Gaming, Connor Alexander. Welcome to the show. <laughs> oh, my God. This is the wrong Dungeon and the wrong. Prince vibe. Woof! <laughs> this makes them even more black. Cake glitches and bitches. lands in the cusp
2: of a Oh no! On a Nat 20. No! You think this is just a game? That's disgusting and I love
3: it. Yeah. We're about
0: to get into something real big now.
3: Thanks so much for having me. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah.
2: Appreciate it. Yeah. It's great to be on the show. Yeah. <laughs> Thank uh, you so much for coming. We are so... Yeah, so it's excited. A, to yeah, have it's you. a pleasure to have you. Absolutely, yeah.
0: thank I, you. I think one of my favorite things. This is just where I wanted to, to start, if I may, is on the original. Uh, you know, your original Kickstarter, which obviously did phenomenally well. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, 2021, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, yeah. Is, that, is that about right? It's yeah, it's been a while
3: already. March of 2021. <laughs> <Yeah. now. laughs>
0: I trust me. I feel that. I definitely feel that. It feels like a lifetime since. yeah, right. But the the opening line of the Kickstarter is a science fiction. Uh, and fantasy tabletop RPG set in the near future where Americas were never colonized. We love this on 3.0! This is great! Yeah. <laughs> like that, I saw that and was like, yep, I'm going to love this. This is great. <laughs> um, yeah. So... I guess we'll we'll start uh, to talk, we'll get to know you a little bit before yeah. we find out about this amazing uh, thing that you have created. Uh, so Connor Alexander, please tell the Halflings, uh, you know, a little bit about your nerdy origin story. How did you get into all of this kind of game design yeah. and, uh, and t- uh, tabletop role-playing games and um, yeah, what, what made you fall in love? With
3: so, so I'm an only child and I grew up uh, with a lot of extended family around me, my uncles especially, who were... Uh, uh fairly close in age and My I the nearest one was only like four or five years older than me and he had the um he was very into into board games he was sort of a, a proto nerd this is early 70s at this point and um uh he really got me into like traditional board gaming at that point I was playing a lot of like chess and and battleship and all the things that little kids play right Um, but, uh, he also really got me involved in science fiction and fantasy. He was the one that introduced me to star Trek mission impossible and the twilight zone. And I think growing up as a kid without siblings and also as a kid who moved around a lot with a single mom, I was always having to find ways to entertain myself and engage my own imagination to get me through some of those afternoons. And, Mm -hmm. Around the sixth, I think it was the sixth grade. Now And I'm, I'm getting a little foggy this far back, but um, <laughs> uh, I, one of the other kids at my school introduced me to to Dungeons and Dragons, and it was a light bulb moment for me because all of a sudden it, I wasn't constricted by this you know square board with pieces on it. I was yeah. able to just unleash my imagination at this point, mm-hmm. and I began pulling from all the yeah. TV shows and films that I loved, and it was probably one of the most rapid transitions from player to dungeon master in the history of, of gaming. It's like, I think I played once, and I was like, no, 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 This, this players, and Let me do this. Yeah, forget this stuff. Yeah. I, by the end of the, the first, thing, first when, session, you've taken over the DM screen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, Give me that book, man. You don't know what you're doing. Give me yeah, that book. Yeah, 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 Move over, move over. <laughs>
0: you go sit there. Um, I think yeah. that, I'm starting to think that might be like an only child thing, because I feel like yeah. I had a very similar... A pro- progression of like, oh, this was a lot of fun. Okay, let me do it now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes.
3: Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah. So then it was. It was a quick progression. Um, I think for me into both more RPGs, but then also more involved uh, tabletop games. I got really involved in things like Axis and Allies, and and that just, of course, pulled me deeper into the nerd crowd. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I went through a fairly. For my age, a, a fairly classic progression of nerdery through all of the, all of the RPGs that came out over the years. First, all the stuff from TSR and then later into stuff like uh, Vampire the Masquerade and Cyberpunk 2020. Mm. Bo- both of those games, I think for me were watershed moments in how I viewed role-playing games because they took a lot of the tactical combat out. And I mean, it's certainly still there, right? But, but they put story forward. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the moment where I went, oh, oh, there's a connection here for me. I've always been more interested mm-hmm. in the story and the emotional beats of what's going on in my yeah. RPGs. And I've always been trying to, to push those mechanics, those dice mechanics into the story. And I was going about it the wrong way. And, uh, yeah, so I think, I think that was, that was my progression to the nineties in the early two thousands. I think when, when D and D hit fourth edition, I sort of lost interest partially because I was playing a lot of world of Warcraft with my friends. Um, but then also because <laughs> sure. we had that sort of Renaissance in tabletop gaming, I started getting into things like Catan and, uh, took it to ride and all the other sort of newer European board games that were coming out. Um, and at that point, I'd, I'd gotten a film and television degree, and I was working in, in the studio system, and it was absolutely soul-sucking. There was nothing that drained my creative juices more than working for Hollywood. Mm. Uh, I was living so. in New Orleans at the time and working a lot of film crews out of New Orleans, and it was just a grind. Um, mm. And so after Hurricane Katrina, I ended up, I, I sort of had to evacuate from Hurricane Katrina and ended up in, back in LA, which made it even worse, right? Like there's nothing more of a grind than working in film industry in LA. <laughs> sure.
0: Um,
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> can you describe a little bit for folks yeah. just like a, a couple elements of that grind? Just oh, absolutely. Because most people haven't been in that kind of an environment. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think
3: so, you know, a lot of people have a very sort of glamorous view of, of what it's like to come on to a set and and- that's quite possibly true for some of the more like a tier actors. But as an example, I I worked on a film called failure to launch an old uh, Matthew McConaughey film. You remember that one? Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Pre McConaughey.
2: Pre McConaughey. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes.
3: (laughs) So uh, I was on the crew for that. That was filmed almost entirely in New Orleans. There was some stuff that wasn't shot there, but for everything that was filmed in New Orleans, I was on that crew and there was a shot at a, uh, a scene at a baseball stadium. And uh, it was supposed to be like a night baseball game. And, the requirements for that shoot set were, were, were such that we had to set up film gear in the stands the night before. And because of the, the nature of the shot and where the cameras had to be placed, where there had to be platforms, we literally worked, I think, about a 28-hour shift um, oh. through the summer in New Orleans. Oh Yikes. In a rural <laughs> area with mosquitoes. Oh no. It was Ugh. hot and humid and we were covered in bug Ugh. bites and the stadium of course shut down their their external lighting on a on a, a timer which meant that we had to set up the film lights that we normally use for filming in order to finish setting up so there was setting up all the lighting gear and everything else um and you know I was per hour I was paid a decent wage but for a
0: 26 28 hour shift that was not a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, that's really, that's really testing the limits of the, f- yeah. you know, I do this for the love of it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know Absolutely. What I mean? you really, like, absolutely. Oh, at 25 hours, you're going, wait yeah. a second. I don't know if yeah. I love this anymore. <laughs> and
3: and I don't have anything so against failure to launch. But, like, my gosh, that film is not one that I've rewatched since. <laughs> right,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: I can't imagine that you even could, honestly. No, like, I feel like no. you'd be getting PTSD just yeah. thinking, oh, my God. Like, but, thinking but back they, to that night in the Yeah, stadium, they don't call yeah.
2: it the McConaissance for nothing. Uh, there exactly. Was a, <laughs> the, most of the yeah. jewels of, of that dude's filmography are in the last 10 years. Yes. Uh, when not he, not he leaned in 50. his
0: McConaugheyness. Yeah, he
2: leaned exactly. into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. He hadn't um, found
0: his McConaugheyness, yeah.
3: But, but yeah, so I ended up in Seattle. I, I decided I needed to get out of L.A., and and it was – again, sort of soul sucking. Um, and, um, I sort of, I was working in marketing and I wasn't really necessarily finding anything that was great. Um, and then I ended up taking a job, banning a retail game shop. It was a very left-hand turn for me. Um, mm. and, uh, that, that was a relief to my soul because all of a sudden I was surrounded by people who loved a lot of the same things that I did. I found myself completely mm. creatively re-inspired. Um, and, uh, somebody who is a customer there scouted me um, to work for a distribution company called PSI. And PSI is sort mm-hmm. of in a weird spot. They're a distributor for board games, but they exist in this kind of shadow world behind the scenes. That the public doesn't really see. I mean, it's not nefarious in any way, but it's, it's <laughs> th- their, their primary customers are folks like target um, and Walmart and Barnes and Noble. And then the other board game distributors, they distribute to distributors and then their vendors are all of these game manufacturers, everybody from little indie folks like Smirk and Dagger. And um, uh, there's a lot of RPG folks work with them. Um, and so, so they're sort of behind the scenes on a customer basis. You're not really going to see them. But it allowed me to see the sort of nuts and bolts of the board game industry in a way that I never had. And mm. that's when I realized that it wasn't just a... a, a when it came to representation and, and specifically native representation in games, it wasn't just that I, from a customer perspective, I wasn't seeing the representation. It was then me seeing how publishers approached the representation they did do. And I'm, I won't name names, but there were a couple of games that came out around 2016, 2017 that I saw and I went, I actually asked them, how, how did you get this native theme on the game? Who helped you with this? And honestly, one of the answers was Oh, one of our Italian designers Is a huge fan of Native Americans And I said Wait, wait,
0: what? You don't even have an
3: indigenous (laughs) consultant Afterwards to rubber stamp the game? Like, the absolute Bare minimum for representation? And and, and, Yeah (laughs) It's I remarkable that's, it's yeah, remarkable yeah.
2: how often people who are like quote unquote fans of a culture yeah. will have mm. a, a will have a number of of misinterpretations of still living cultures. Yes. And then their their ideas will be tr- interpreted and put into uh, works, and it's like wait, but they're, the real people exist. We could actually, especially for larger yeah, yep. projects that have yeah. budget, we could, or if it's just like a very accessible group of people, they're everywhere. Just go Absolutely. ask one of them. What yeah, they I, I remember. Wild. I remember
0: very specifically getting asked uh, by an executive once, like, "Oh, like Jasper, you're like a big fan of anime. Maybe you should like lead this." And I was like. No, 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 no. Like, that's like, the, all, Like first of all, this like anime that we're proposing is not set in England. It is set <laughs> in Japan. Yeah. So maybe, yeah. you know, and, like, it was, so like, yeah, that was a very, that was a very fun conversation. Cause there's definitely a part of you that goes, oh, this is a big opportunity or whatever. And then you immediately have to slam on the brakes and be like, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 I really shouldn't do that. I really shouldn't do that. I, I
3: think in both this. Europe and in North America, I think white people being in charge has become such a default. And, I, and this is not like, a, a direct slam on any particular white person. I think it's just the embedded culture that they yep. just have an assumption, a built-in assumption. I can do this because I'm a creative person in a position of power. I'll take that. Mm. And it's not mm-hmm. even questioned. It's, it's just an assumption.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah absolutely. And I,
3: I think at that point, when I saw that, I think that was the point at which I said, why am I not contributing? Why?" It's one thing for me to criticize other people's works, but if I'm in a position where I can contribute and, and, and here's where I have to really acknowledge the privilege that I had going into Coyote and Crow. A, I'm white passing. B, um, I'm in the industry and I know all of the distributors and publishers. I know the ins and outs of the industry in a way that most game designers just coming into the field probably don't. Um, I'm in a position where I had a stable income and I, I fronted out of my own savings a lot of the money to get Coyote and Crow to where it was to be able to launch. And I wasn't going to go bankrupt if, if it didn't fail, uh, man, there's a, mm. I know a number of publishers who every time they launch a Kickstarter, it's, it's do or die for them. And, and oh I don't goodness. know how they live that way because the stress, even that I was just under, under this personal project, yeah. when I hear, I, I know a publisher that actually put a mortgage on their house to get a game done. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Goodness goodness. And I, I, that's, that's not a sustainable oh. environment for folks. No. Um, no and
0: i think that also as well is something that uh, through no fault of these people obviously but it's like that's like a that's a that's a, like a deathbed for creativity yeah, you know what mm, I mean? if you've got like yeah. that much riding on something you know what i mean like that's like you need to be in like a very easy free place where you can do you know what i mean where you can create these yes. things and it, it, you know and, it, and it's enjoyable like that's where your the best work will come and the idea of doing it under such enormous pressure is oh terrifying absolutely, like literally life or death
2: to an ex- extent like yeah, your to whole extent, yeah, life absolutely. will change if this fails. Yes. yes.
3: Yeah. yeah. And, and I was so fortunate is. that my life did change because of Coiti and Crow, but it can in the complete sort of opposite <laughs> direction. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I I was just talking to somebody about this the other day that, that there was a point at which Coiti and Crow's success stopped being about the RPG. It was about two weeks into the success. And I had a very big decision to make. And that was is do I just fulfill these backers and walk away. I had a full-time job. I had everything else I needed, but mm. just fulfill this book and walk away from it. Or is this a moment where I change what I'm doing? And, and I, I just, I felt an enormous amount of, um, uh, weight to that decision that I think, uh, the idea was, is, is I've gotten up a rung on the ladder. Do I just step mm. off the ladder? Or do I help the person down below me on the next rung? And mm-hmm. and I I I think I'd like to say I'd like to say it was entirely altruistic. But I also know <laughs> that there were a lot of I think native creators that I was that I was already working with writers and artists and all these other folks that have helped me get to Coyote and Crow where it was that I think would have given me some shit. They, uh, sorry for the cursing. Mm. Mm. Um, oh no, no, it's no it's fine. Um, fine. go for it. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, so <laughs> yeah. then, so then, yeah, they would have given me a lot of shit um, for yeah. not helping them up the ladder a little bit, and, and rightfully so, right? So, I think at that point, about halfway through the Kickstarter's, when I I spoke to my bosses at at the distribution company PSI, and I said, I think this might have to be the end of my time with you. I think I have an obligation here to. Not just fulfill kite and crow, but start a company with this, and and provide some positive examples for representation out there, and yeah. hopefully, I'm doing. I, I think that. this is.
0: A, yeah, well, I, I you know uh, I can say that from the outside, it certainly it certainly seems that way, and like I think one of the things that is so fascinating, it goes back to something we we've, we've talked about a lot, which is like just this. Overwhelming sense of pressure that is put on you know anyone who is trying to do something new or bring you know new people mm-hmm. into the space like there is so much pressure that comes with that the pressure of not failing, the pressure of not letting other people down you know uh kind of goes back to what we were just saying as well the idea of like you know doing these things under yeah. a certain level of pressure rather than having you know the freedom to just be like, Hey, I can mess this up, and it's mm-hmm. okay you know what I mean like whereas I think that i you know i th- the success of that Kickstarter is just. Beyond, you know, I, I can. I should imagine it was probably beyond your even your wildest dreams. Far beyond, uh, and I'd love to ask you about that. But like, just in fact, actually, I guess I will ask you about that. Like, you know, how, how was that for you? That you know, because I mean, it was. I mean, the, the figures are staggering. Yeah, right? I, I, I think mean, we we from, set from,
3: the goal at at, at eighteen thousand, 18, and quite, frankly, yeah. that was still going to be a bit of a loss for me, but. It was a loss I was willing to stomach, and just go, hey, this is going to be get me enough to make my print run, satisfy my backers, and and I'll, I'll have a product that I'm proud of. That was my my starting point, right? Um, and then 25, I think, was up about where I was going to break even. Twenty five thousand of of what I'd put in, and I was like, cool, I can live with that too. That's great. And we hit that. I don't remember. It was maybe an hour, hour and a half. We hit that, and. Um, <laughs> And then I think by the end of day two or three, we'd passed $100,000. And at that point, the panic started to set in. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) I was going to ask what point you started to go, oh, no. When did you run out of of stretch goals?
2: Like, when did you have to start throwing more in? (laughs) So we had sketched out some stretch goals.
3: Um, Heather O'Neill, who works for Ninth Level Games, uh, was my my Kickstarter manager. And um, she's amazing, by the way. If you ever get a chance to speak with her, um, she does great stuff in the RPG world. Um, and she has a lot of experience in Kickstarters. We had sort of sketched out some, some stretch goals early, but we'd blown through them so fast that by the time mm. we got into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, we were scrambling for goals that made sense uh, and trying to scale them appropriately because we're like, how big is this going to yep. be? We, have, we can't tell anymore. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The um,
0: idea the I like I I would love to have been inside your mind when you realized that you were going to have to come up with a 1 million dollar stretch goal. Oh my like, god. <laughs> like oh I like, I can't even imagine what is going on inside of my head okay. during that moment. I can I'd give you like, a good
3: picture. I can give you a really good picture. <laughs> okay, awesome, imagine awesome. 12 <laughs> raccoons fighting over a bag of trash. That's yeah. that's that's what was going on in my brain. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
3: yeah. Um, <sighs> that's
0: incredible. I mean, yeah, like I mean, obviously uh, Uh, that's just is absolutely phenomenal and i think that one thing that is so awesome about it is that it really feels like um in a way that i think we were very kind of fortunate with especially like just around the timing There's su- there was such a desire in you know that kind of 2020 to twenty you know, end of 2021, 2022 I mean still now to some extent you know there was just this huge thirst for anything that wasn't you know your traditional mm. uh, you know European fantasy yeah. you know and, and I just think like it was such a beautiful like vibrant time to absolutely like see all of these works coming together and see all these people from different backgrounds suddenly feeling embodied emboldened to create stuff and all kind of feeding off of each other. I think that like, you know, like when you, when we see projects like this, you know, going to that extent, it definitely feels like a driving force for us to carry on doing what we're Absolutely. doing. Because it's that kind of confirmation of like, oh, we're still doing something. And it's like, you know, that's, that's worth, that's of worth and that people are, are, are investing in and, and interested yeah. in. Um, I think a
3: great example of that was the, the Nebula Award nominations that year. Um, mm-hmm. Up until that point, it had been always video games for game writing. And mm. the fact that three tabletop role-playing games were nominated that year, yeah, uh, right. was a huge swing, right? It was a massive swing, mm. and I, I think that was yeah. a, a good indicator of the sort of um, tonal change in the industry, which is mm. great. Like I still, I still see a lot of RPGs coming out now that aren't Eurocentric fantasy, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Good on them.
2: Yeah, I wanted to throw out, even as an American, especially like uh, I feel like in America. Native Americans, as a category of people, are sort of like they exist in the past for most no, for most Americans because yeah. you, you don't. Uh because of essentially what has happened you just you see native americans in movies a lot of times it's not even actual native americans it's other people playing yeah. native americans <laughs> um yeah. it's so rare yeah. that you actually like there are, there are, that you see a person who is native american in a po- prominent position or like a, having an opportunity to actually depict their own culture yeah. like i remember seeing uh smoke signals years oh ago. my god and that yeah, movie, yeah that movie's great uh yeah. for those of you who don't know it's, i think at the time i don't know if it still is but at the time i think it was the only movie that had an entirely native american cast and crew i think that sounds right yeah i actually never looked yeah. up that statistic no. that sounds right yeah yeah that movie's great uh absolutely yeah. go check that movie out but like yeah that was it was so fascinating to get to see like oh we get to actually see the people like and yes. understand natives like, as what... real people
3: not as caricatures exactly. or stand-ins but Real exactly. people, yes. Yeah, Yeah. and yeah. so
2: to have this now in TTRPG is such a prominent and successful uh, game and such a great game. I've only played Thank a you. little bit of it, but the little bit that I played, I was like, this is fantastic. I would absolutely play more of this. Uh, I think it's really it's really wonderful to see uh and it is a it is an unequivocal good i think for the ttrpg industry i actually wanted to ask uh on that note what about uh what were your inspirations for the lore and premise of the game now i understand that Mm -hmm. the premise is that it's like sort of uh, it's essentially like sci-fi if um europeans never colonized uh yeah. the americas yeah. but can you go into a bit more detail about uh the general lore and premise uh yeah, inspirations for sure
3: uh so i i feel like the launching point for me was what i didn't want um and it was it was based on my reaction to a video game that came out at the time called Greedfall. Um, and I don't know if you guys remember that mm-hmm. one, um, but the the, yeah. the brief premise here was is that there's sort of a Victorian era Europe that has a plague or something like that, and they need to go to this savage land and find the cure from the mysticals who have magic. And it was uh, it was painful to watch, <laughs> right? Um, and yeah. and I I knew I already knew I wanted to develop a game. It wasn't necessarily going to be an RPG at that point. Uh, it it might have been a very complex board game, but I knew that the more lore I began to build out for it, the more I realized, and eh, this needs to be an RPG if I'm going to put this many pages of lore in it. And the more I tried to work around colonialism, because because at the root, what I wanted was a game that didn't force natives to read through a chapter on the book of how did we deal with colonialism and have, have them revisit their own traumas. I don't want to re-traumatize anyone. So the more I tried to come up with an idea for how did natives in this world deal with colonialism, the more I realized I just need a game that doesn't have colonialism in it. And so I, I I forced myself into a corner of, I need an alternate timeline where colonialism didn't happen. And so that was, that was the impetus for everything. Everything started from that point. Um, But I think the, a lot of the other inspirations I had were um, I think from at the time were from films like black, well, films and comics like Black Panther, um, where you have a society that has, um, by some standards, is a utopia, but by anybody who closely examines it, is not a utopia. I mean, uh, again, I, we get criticized in Kite and Crow for saying, "Oh, it's a utopia because everybody has." Food, clothing, shelter, and education. I'm like, I'm sorry, folks. If your standard for utopia is the, the basic minimums for decent life, you're way out of whack. Capitalism and colonialism have done a number on you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's rough. Yeah. Yeah. That's a low bar. It's
2: a very a really low, low bar. bar.
3: <laughs> um, so, uh, but, but, so Wakanda obviously was an inspiration, but I also think the, um, blending of, uh, of nature and science that I saw in games like horizon zero dawn were also a big inspiration. Mm. Um, yeah. and, um, I loved, I love how they, they integrate those two things. Um, in that game. So those were, I think were sort of the inspirations, but, but really quickly, I, I think I, I developed this concept of the Adonati in the game, this Mark, um, because I love when, um, when you get that gray area between science and magic, um, and, and a lot of, a lot of settings feel like they need to define those two things. And I am absolutely against it. Mm. Um, uh, obviously in those settings it's fine like cyberpunk or shadow or whatever have their very specific definitions of science and magic um but i think for my own my own native heritage i like it when i can't put something into a box and i let other people decide what it is which is why i never call out whether something is magical or mystical or science-based in coyote and crow sure. just let my players decide let them build their own worlds out um but with the Audinati, I I ha- sort of had this MacGuffin that I could use right to sort of go, hey, we've got some something that altered the world, that changed the way people interact with the world. It allows for. um a certain level of super science. I mean, there's hovering vehicles um, um, and sort of anti-gravity stuff, uh, technology in the game that's powered by this Adonati. And then the Adonati also gives people sort of a special ability, not sort of superhero level abilities, but uh, enough to make their characters feel like standout heroes, which is really what I want, you know, for the game is, is for these characters to feel like they are characters who will be talked about around a campfire 100 years from now. Um, yeah. their, their stories are yeah. told, right? So they're supposed to be epic mm-hmm. characters. Um, so that was that was kind of the genesis mm-hmm. for the, the setting.
1: Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a couple things in there which really uh, jump out to me. And uh, one of them, I think, is that, you know, okay. I think it's a very uh, kind of... Uh, post-colonial uh like Western view of the world to be like we have to label and understand everything and boil it down and take it apart, put it back together and you know what I mean? I think if you go to the roots of nearly any native uh culture who will have, you know, uh and you can go back and into like ancient parts of Africa and who had, you know, very advanced sort of for the time technologies, it wasn't necessarily a case of like having to sort of dissect every single thing and label every single thing. It was like there was an acceptance of the way that certain things worked and uh, and i think that like that um it's really interesting that you brought up Horizon zero dawn because i remember feeling like a very strong connection to that game just the idea of this kind of symbiosis between uh kind of you know almost like these three like you know like magic kind of the mystical and then the 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 kind of technology yeah and i thought it was such a um i think for a lot of people honestly a lot of uh, uh people who have any kind of um ties to anything like this. I think it did, did ring really true actually. And I think it's a really um kind of like uh, interesting and like fun uh like idea and concept to kind of build this game out from. Um uh, and I and I really, really enjoy that. How did the process just just to get sort of like mm-hmm. a little bit more technical sure. about the creation of the game. How did the process of like getting everyone together, I guess, especially mm. once, you know, this it has then gone to another level, you know, yeah. you, you you're you know, the eighteen thousand you were hoping for turns into over a million. Yeah. You know, w- what just on a technical level, you know, what is that like in terms of you know, the couple of weeks afterwards when mm. you're kind of, you know, now looking at the project in terms of the scope of it, what you want to achieve, uh, the people that you want to bring on board. And, and, I, and I guess also, how did you go about finding those people? Because that's something yeah. that often gets... Thrown around as an excuse, uh, when not hiring, uh, you know, the right people for the job, it's like, oh, but they're not out there, or you know, they don't have the same level of experience or whatever. So I'm just intrigued as to how you found that process. It's
3: it's daunting. I knew from probably uh, a third of the way into my development that you know once I had sort of the skeleton of the game and the skeleton of the mechanics that I wanted to use, that my my own native my own specific Cherokee background as a Cherokee citizen was actually to somewhat uh, somewhat of a hindrance um, in that um, if I make this game that covers all of North America and I I don't cover all of the specifics of every real world nation in this place, but then I make it as a Cherokee citizen, I've sort of squashed their voices. And so I knew that while the game needed to be sort of an open sandbox for uh, real world natives to be able to play in it and, and and add their own cultures to it. I also kind of knew that um, if I did it just on my own, everybody who was native was going to look at me and go, eh, this is a thinly skinned Cherokee game. You've got a lot of Cherokee, you know, slant here, right? <laughs> sure. So yeah. um, I think r- from that point, I knew that I had to bring other writers on board, mm-hmm. not just for a level of authenticity for the game, but because I think more writers makes an RPG better. I think you get different perspectives and ideas and your world becomes more lived in the more voices you have. Mm -hmm. So getting the writers was actually pretty easy. Um, I had, I I just sort of put some feelers out. I already had a Mm -hmm. decent social media presence. So I put some feelers out and asked around, you know, who had, you know, writing experience. And a lot of the folks who ended up writing for, for Coyote and Crow had never written for an RPG before they'd written for other things um but uh so that it wasn't it wasn't too difficult to sort of hand hold them through writing for an rpg process that was pretty straightforward but art was a completely different story um i think if you look on the kickstarter it still says i think on the kickstarter because you you can't change it once it closes um i think it still says a 300 page book it the final book is 471 pages which is Due to the fact that as we scaled up on the Kickstarter, we realized, oh, we need to provide more. We need to deliver more than that 300-page book. And that meant more art. And I was already working with a couple of Native artists, but I think the, the key dynamic, and I think you see this with a lot of marginalized circles uh, of folks in any kind of creative uh, endeavor, um, is that um, you have the few folks who are professionals, And those Mm. folks were very happy to work on Kite and Crow, but they had a ridiculously limited schedule. I had one guy, an artist who works for Marvel Comics. Uh, He was like, I can give you two pieces of art in 18 months from now. And (laughs) yeah, and that's not a timeline I can work with. I was very happy that he was willing to work with me on my budget, but that's not a timeline I can work on, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, And then on the other hand, I had artists who had never professionally published and who had no professional skills set at all to pull from whatsoever. They were always missing guidelines. They didn't know how to, the the technical formats to deliver the art in. Um, Mm, mm, mm. And, and so as a, as a, not just a game designer, but also a project manager at that point, mm-hmm. it becomes a lot of hand-holding and pushing and pulling. And you don't want to burn bridges or upset people, but you're trying to pull the best art out of them. And quite frankly, that's, that's the biggest struggle I've ever gone through on this project, was getting the art to where I wanted it to be with the people I wanted, it, uh, wanted on board. Um, and, and, you know, even now, like I, I'm super thankful that I've got probably half a dozen indigenous artists that I work with regularly who I love. And they are, they are in touch with the, the futurism that I want. And that's another aspect is that a lot of native artists are working on keeping their own cultures alive. So they're often looking backwards. They're pulling from tradition, and, which is great. But it also means that they're, they don't necessarily aren't necessarily looking forward for futurism. And mm-hmm. that can be tough to pull out of somebody. Um, they they, they will revert.
0: That's really interesting, actually. I never really kind of thought of that concept—the idea that you know, with so many of these cultures that are either you know being slowly eroded away because of the way that you know we're kind of yeah. evolving as a society, that there is probably you know we do have a lot of focus on preserve preservation and of keeping you know uh, all of these things uh, kind of safe and, and close to our chests. But actually, you know, maybe what we're not doing versus you know uh, other other people that constantly are, you know, as we've seen because there's been you know, we've been making sci-fi for ah, so many years, you know, there isn't that sense of looking forward and like the idea of what that, you know, what this society, what this culture, you know, would look like or does how does that evolve? And I actually think that's, that's a really interesting, um, that's a really, really interesting point, actually. I think there's a, lot yeah. of, there's a lot of fruit to think of. There's a lot of things yeah. to think about in that. Uh, I think, yeah.
3: and I'd like to add that, like, I think one of the things that is also my, a personal thing for me is that mm-hmm. in games, it's one thing to have accurate representation To be like historically accurate when it comes to colors or ceremonies or traditions or whatever it is you're you're portraying in your game, it's one thing to be accurate, but there's still a a perspective that you're giving. And I think that most games right now, the perspective when it comes to indigenous folks, especially if it's it's not being produced by an indigenous person, is, is it's a thing of the past. It's always a thing of the past, and it's usually them interacting with colonialist elements. They're interacting right. in, the, in, the, in, in the Revolutionary War or colonization. That's just traumatic
2: at its foundational level for, for indigenous <laughs> yeah. folks sometimes. Can you give us a little bit of understanding about the system for anyone who hasn't played the game, Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit of understanding about the system and also Mm -hmm. beyond that, what is the game about from a gameplay perspective, like in the same way that you could say D&D is a power fantasy about fighting monsters, gaining prestige, saving the world. Like that's the end goal. Mm -hmm. Or as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the other games started to play where it comes to whether when it comes to like cyberpunk and Vampire the Masquerade, the the focus starts to be more on the story rather on, you know, Uh, absolutely. Absolutely.
3: And I, I think for, for folks who aren't uh, fluent with Kite and Crow, the, the best sort of analogy I can come up with for the kinds of stories that we want to tell, I think can be, can be encapsulated in what I think a lot of the best of shows like Star Trek do, which is, is, is introduce characters who are an established, either literal family or chosen family, and put them in scenarios where they are encountering something new. Or something unexpected. I mean, it, it's not always new. Sometimes it's just the Romulans and the Klingons, right? So, um, um, but a situation that is new that requires you to think about things in maybe a new way. Sometimes it ends up in a fight, and sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes you're trying to avoid the fight. And you know, there's all that that sort of feeling. But at the end, hopefully, you're coming away with a better understanding. And and I think that's at the heart of a lot of indigenous storytelling, whether they're violent stories or not. Is you're trying to Encapsulate the nature of the world a little bit in a story. I think I mentioned earlier that like for the for the for the characters, they're supposed to be building these epic heroes. and one of the things that we have in our experience mechanic, uh, we call it the legendary system, is that you you as a player are supposed to write down in a format what your character did to achieve that legendary level. sort of, It's sort of like leveling. So like when you level to a legendary Mm -hmm. one rank, you would write in a story format what your character did. And it's not supposed to be a literal accounting. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be like an epic poem or a short story Mm -hmm. or a song or whatever you want it to be. And everybody, all the players at the Mm -hmm. table do that on their own with their character as the center of that story. They're the hero in their own story. And then you reshare those stories, and you come back and you realize, wow, I didn't remember that happening that way. I thought it was happened my way, you know. So you end up with these <laughs> slightly, you know, ver- slight variations on the story. Um, but my mechanics hopefully reflect that, and that is, is that I, I use a, a D12 dice pool system that is meant to very much keep the game flowing. If the game is flowing the way I want it flowing, nobody has their books open. You've got your character sheet in front of you. You're telling the story. Anytime you want to be making a check to do something, whether it's combat or non-combat, you're rolling a pool of dice that are, are related to your stat. It's always d12s, um, and basically the the, the very the, the the foundation of it is is you pick a success number. The story guide picks a success number, um, and that could be like let's say nine, um, and uh, on a scale of one to twelve. So then you're going to roll your dice pool, and every d12 that you get um, uh, that scores a nine or higher is a success. And sometimes Mm. a success is a binary. You either succeed or you fail. But oftentimes, it's a number of successes that are needed. So uh, you might need three or four successes to get something done. Um, And there's a bit of an explosive dice element as well. There's a way to roll a critical. If you roll a 12, you get to roll extra dice. Um, But the idea is to add a, a, a sort of epic feel to the game to your storytelling. Um, I try Ooh. to minimize the amount of dice rolling I do in the game. Um, and like, sure. Certainly, you can add mm. crunch. You can add a lot of crunch to the game. If you're the <laughs> kind of folks that want to be rolling dice all the time, go for it. I don't want to stop that. But hopefully, my dice mm. system facilitates the storytelling and doesn't slow it down.
0: Yeah, I, mm. I think it really goes back to something that you mentioned earlier, which I think... Uh, really comes across in the way that you describe the game, and obviously what you've managed to to create. And I think it's so so wonderful, which is that you kind of very specifically said that you know the the key in for you uh, with all of this wasn't the kind of crunch, wasn't the maths or whatever. It was that emotional, you know, finding that emotional moment that where you you emotionally connected to a character. And I think that uh, it kind of clearly shows by the way that you. You know you're talking about the game and and, and the game that you wanted to make that you're trying to kind of give other people that that same experience you yeah. want them to be you know heads up with their you know with their friends around the table you know really creating those stories together and and hopefully getting to a point where they feel like they can yeah. emotionally invest and i think that's a uh that's really really awesome and i I definitely feel like you know we've been lucky enough to kind of dip into loads more sort of TTRPGs uh recently um I think the 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 space generally is is diversifying which is fantastic and there really are like you know uh, so many other games that just like really beautiful in that way that you you know, um, I was lucky enough to play some kids on bikes the other day, and I remember just like f- fully forgetting I had dice <laughs> for like yeah. about an hour. I was just like, oh right, yeah, <laughs> like, like uh, I'm, I'm so sorry, glad yeah, you I'll, brought uh, up kids on bikes. I'll roll yeah. this. Yeah. I guess that's a yeah. great game. <laughs> yeah.
3: uh, have yeah. you guys had Doug Doug Lewandowski on the show? No, no. the no. creator of Kids on Bikes. Oh, you should absolutely get him. He's amazing. So I I, I called Doug a friend, and he's really he's just a he is an amazing man. Oh, he's ooh, I love him.
2: definitely he's, give, he's give us his info. Cause yeah, I, yeah, yeah, we'd I love um, to have, we, the, we did have a whole, the, yeah. uh, mini series kids on bikes mm-hmm. earlier this year. Uh, big trouble. Oh, and fantastic. Manus. Yeah, Uh, it was a blast. (laughs) It was very fun.
0: It was very, very fun. Yeah,
3: I will absolutely make an intro. Amazing, yes. Thank you so much. That's
0: awesome. Um, Yeah. Well, I guess just to just to move on a little bit, um, you know, you just had a a new uh, Kickstarter and another huge success (laughs) again. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Congratulations. So, uh, I'd love to just sort of, you know, what do you think? uh, What are you hoping that the Wolves uh, expansion is going to bring to players who maybe some players who are familiar with Kite and Crow, and maybe uh, other players. A, a new and you know what are you what are you hoping for that they'll get out of the new expansion? So the, the game is technically set in the world
3: of Coyote and Crow in its past. So you're playing as a, an agrarian leader of a community. It's a classic tabletop board game, but it is technically standalone. You don't need to have any knowledge of Coyote and Crow to play it. Mm. Um, one of the things that concern me with getting into TTRPGs is that there can be a high barrier to entry, um, both in terms of cost uh, sometimes, but then also, um, especially if I'm putting out a 400 page book, mm-hmm. um, but then also um, the sort of intimidation factor for folks who are, are not used to TTRPGs and the rule set that comes along with it. It can be a scary thing if you don't have somebody like the right person to introduce you to a role playing game. Um, so board games for me are my attempt to reach out to a wider native audience. If non-natives play my games, that's great. I I love that. That's wonderful. But I'm trying to speak to an indigenous audience because I think so often I see that they're still, A, they don't have as much disposable income, but then B oftentimes their game shelves are full of things like Monopoly. And that's like the last thing I want to see on a native person's shelf, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Yeah. Um, Oof,
0: there's so many layers to that. It was like, I was just like, <laughs> as you were saying that, I was just processing like, oh my god. Yeah, no. Oh, fuck. Please, yeah. no. Yeah.
3: <laughs> 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm trying really hard to expand into board games as a sort of a, a baby steps, right? So it's a baby steps to bring them into modern board gaming, into modern mm-hmm. game ideas of, of, of community around gaming. And maybe they'll get to the RPG eventually, or maybe it's not the cup of tea. That's fine, too. But I want to keep providing board games that, that can engage native audiences in a way that are hopeful and accurate um, and just bring sort of that modern aesthetic to, uh, to an indigenous audience. Um, so the the game the game uh, incorporates ideas of a of a gifting economy. Are you guys familiar um, with gifting economies? Could you at explain?
2: Because uh, even if I'm familiar,
3: which, are, like, uh, which I'm not sure I am. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I would have I would have anyway. Just for the audience, right? So uh, gifting economies are, are common in a lot of indigenous cultures. You see a lot of it happen in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but, but globally, there's a lot of this. And that is, is that if you're in a group who's producing something and producing product A, and then you've got a group over there that's producing product B, um, and you both need A and B, then uh, at a certain point, if you're producing more than you need, you take that excess and you just go over to the other group and go, here you go. Mm. Take, take A. There's no barter. There's no buying. There's no economy there. You are just giving them that. And maybe you've already got enough of product B that the other person doesn't need to give you any. In that case, they don't. Um, There's no exchange there that's a direct currency or a a physical exchange. Now, there is sometimes the uh, sort of idea of status or bragging rights. There's the idea that you can go, hey, I'm such a good fisherman that I can provide for my own people and I can provide for you. But that's more bragging rights toward your own people mm. because you're going, look, I can take care of those people over there too on top of us. Mm. And that makes you look like a good leader. It makes you look like you're, you've got an organized society. It's, it's bragging rights, right? So in the game, Wolves, you're all playing these leaders of these, these communities that need to survive through winter through sharing of resources. And you can maybe make it on your own, but if any player fails during the game, everybody loses the game. Mm. which encourages you to gift other people mm. your excess resources. Now, at the end of the game, the person who is most effectively gifted their resources is elected chief of all the communities. <laughs> so there is still an individual winner, but you've all got to make it across that finish line in order to get to that point. Yeah, um, And I, I think there's just a lot yeah. of there's a
0: lot of good messaging in there, I think personally uh, yeah and i think it, it's not yeah. something you see in a lot of board games oh, i love the idea like hey yeah i have more stuff and uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna be i'm gonna brag right now and tell you how cool i am and how great i am but i'm gonna do it in a way <laughs> that gives you a valuable resource that you need you know yes. what i mean like that feels like yes. the least toxic yeah. way that you could my awesomeness for <laughs> your benefit <laughs> Yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. exactly. I, that's that's exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, natives are big show offs. If you know, if you've ever gone to a powwow, you are going to see some people show off. Yeah. We love to brag. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like yeah. I think there's <laughs> there's uh, I can think of a lot of. Uh, similarities especially like uh, whenever i'd go over to my friends and uh, i've got one particular friend who lives in, in croydon and whenever i go to his house his mom's like sit down i'm giving you the best yeah. meal of your life and you will love it <laughs> you know what i mean but it's like it's definitely yeah. like an aggressive like yeah. thing you know what i mean for her like she's very yeah. extremely passionate about this it's not out of like an altruism it's just like no, no no <laughs> i need to to show you that I can give you the best meal of your life, yeah, you know what I mean. That's cool to me.
3: <laughs> you know what's cool about that too is I've seen that cross cultural, and I think the unif- sort of unifying behavior there is it's it's it's, it's marginalized mm. and or poor communities because there's this idea of like, man, this this resource is important to me, and I've I've gotten it to a point where I've perfected it, mm. and now you all need to see like how we've thrived with as little as we've had, yeah. and I mm. I love that. Yeah, like you go down to New Orleans, you get some of the best food. I mean, there's there's a million examples of this, right? Like like peasant food is some of the best food on the world. Oh, for sure. any, cultures, any cultures, any culture is peasant food. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. Mm.
0: I, I'm always just like the more like. Uh, kind of just like basic, a stand looks, you know what I mean? Like a, like a food oh, stand, yeah. you're like, yep. you know, whatever they're yep. cooking is going to be straight fire. So, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, rather than going to like some fancy market and being like, oh, you mm-hmm. have Jamaican food? Are you sure? <laughs> like, Because I don't, yeah. you know what I mean? All you look kind of white to me. So I don't know if this is going to be- I was just going to say, not not,
3: exactly. not an ounce of melanin in the whole yeah, restaurant, yeah, yeah, oh, no. you know, you're uh, in trouble, absolutely right? Not. Absolutely not. But
0: there's the word jerk is everywhere. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, I just uh, Jeremy, I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to throw out uh, before we sort of start to wrap this uh, this uh, up. Uh,
2: uh, only the only thing I will say is that we got to play this game on the show sometime. Uh, I cannot wait to do this because, oh yeah, uh, yeah, this, I'm <laughs> yes. As yes, I said before, yes, yes, I think yes, it yes. is an unequivocal good for the gaming industry as a whole, uh, and things like this existing in mm, especially American you. culture at large, I think, can only help uh, because of the lack of representation yeah. of uh, by. Native Native Americans of their own culture, uh, especially in such a cool uh, futurist sort of context, which again, you so rarely see for a lot of different marginalized cultures. So yeah, this is really awesome.
0: And I really hope that like any success that, you know, Coyote and Crow has maybe even to an extent that three black halflings has is proof to people that you don't need to make something which you think is going to be, you know, uh, a mass appealing or, or whatever it is, you know, that that people of all shapes and sizes will interact with your content. If it's coming from a place of like honesty and truth, and you just want to yeah. make something cool, you know what I mean? And you yeah. wanted to make something cool for native people. That was your focus. But what you ended up making was something that everyone, the world over was like super excited about and wanted to play and wanted to you know get get on board with and i think it's a really important lesson that i think we're maybe yeah. starting to like you know i think that most of the, a lot of people on our level are getting that but i think you know there's like uh, people sort of above us who maybe just need to understand now like hey you can make something yeah. uh that is like really pe appe- like you know if there's if there's an earnestness and a truth to that creativity, you will. No matter how specific that thing is, people will want to interact with it. People will want to see it. People will want to check it out. Uh, and I really yeah. hope that they be true to, to your audience. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, a hundred percent. So, just before we wrap this uh, this episode up, one thing that we always do with all of our guests is we ask them for a tale from the table. So this can be any kind of uh, story, anything that jumps out, to, mm. you know, from your uh, playing. You know, if you've got an example from Coyote and Crow, that would be amazing. But it can be any any TTRPG yeah. that you've played, but just a moment. Uh, it can be like heartfelt and like lovely. It can be hilarious. It can be very silly. It just, anything that jumps out to you, uh, tell us a little. So, story.
3: yeah. So I, I've been wanting to share this one for a while. It happened a couple of weeks ago oh, cool. and uh, I was attending a small event um, in Tacoma, Washington, um, and it was on indigenous futurisms. Um, and so we had like a, a vendor section and there were there was music going on. And, and I was I I was pretty much the only game vendor there. Everybody else was dealing in crafts or other things, you know, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> um sitting there at the table and uh, a family was, was working their um, craft table, a couple of tables down and they had brought their kids with them and the kids quickly got bored as kids do. They were, there was a, a little boy around nine and a little girl around 11, I think. Um, and then they were sort of attracted to my table and came over and started asking me questions. Um, and uh, about 20 minutes later, the little boy comes back and says, how much is your book? Hmm. And I, I'd, I'd given him the, the spiel already, like the, the brief lowdown of what Coyote and Crow was. And um, I said, you know, it's $70. And the little boy and the little girl started talking back and forth. And I could tell that they had they'd seen or heard about D&D enough to know what role-playing games were. And the little boy comes back a few minutes later, and he slows. He says, "I got a gift card from my grandma with a hundred bucks on it. Can I buy your book?" And I was so excited and flattered, but I also, also like, I also know little kid purchases, right? And I didn't want him to regret it. And I was like, "Well, why don't you just take a copy of the book and look at it for a little while, and and make sure this is something you want to do? Maybe talk with your mom about it. Just make sure, right?" So he comes back about a half an hour later with the card. He's like, "Yeah, I want to buy the book," and he just launches at that point, like not even had bought the book yet. He launches in to the character he's going to make. He and the little girl have been reading already and she's going to make a healer and he's going to make a warrior. And he says, you know, the warrior, he's got to have high spirit. That's one of the stats Mm -hmm. in the game. I has got to have high spirit because a leader needs to have really high spirit. And I'm going to give him the, the ability of ancestor storm, because that really will like help him be a good leader. Like he'd already read through the abilities.
0: Wow. And That's so, and so cool. he,
3: he buys the book and I was like, take a dice set kid. So I, happy birthday, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. his birthday money. So I gave him, I gave him a set of dice. He came back a few minutes later and with the card, the remainder of the money of, of the, on the card and bought our story guide screen too, just because he loved the art on it. Mm-hmm. And I remember that feeling from when I was a kid first engaging in role-playing games and that, that sense of imagination. And I was like, that just made everything I did for Coyote and Crow worth yeah. it right there. That one interaction yep. was enough to have sold me on it. Yep. Just the fire in that kid's eyes and how excited he
0: was to play. Absolutely. That's, so that's cool. Yeah. that's can't ask for anything. That's, that's the, those are the moments, yeah. right? Those are absolutely the moments. You yeah. know, we, I, I can think of moments. I'm sure uh, Jeremy, you've had them as well, where you kind of you just go, okay, that's it. Like <laughs> we've done that. I'm happy. Like, I'm happy that that, you know, like even if we achieve nothing else, like that was pretty, that was pretty awesome. Um, Uh, Well, uh, Connor, thank you so much for coming on the show. I can't tell you how much we appreciate you uh, giving up your time. And I just wanted to, as well, just call out the absolute peak peak minority mindset that was going on when you said a 300 page book is not enough <laughs> like if, if there is anything that sums up you know being a minority in a creative space that was a perfect yeah. moment where you said no no yeah. no 300 pages is not enough uh we need more <laughs> um but all i can say is thank you yep. so much for you know for creating that three, yeah. those 300 and the, and more uh that you've made <laughs> and i want to echo exactly what jeremy said that it's a it's a really fantastic thing for the space so so, um, please tell all of the halflings this thing at home who are now I'm sure are chomping at the bit to, uh, you know, learn more about Cody Crow and, and maybe get themselves a copy, et cetera. Uh, where can they find, uh, you, uh, yourself and then anything that you have either coming up or anything that's out right now that you want to, yeah. you want to shout out the floor.
3: Yeah. We have uh, uh, our website is coyoteandcrow.net, just coyote and crow, I'll just spelled out. Um, and uh, all of our socials are listed there. We've got an amazing Discord uh, group that's really active and, and fun to be with. Uh, We're on Twitter, Blue Sky, under Kite and Crow Games. In fact, pretty much anywhere on the internet, if you just drop a Google search and say Kite and Crow, the only other Kite and Crow you're going to get is some weird uh, uh, New York folk band. (laughs) Um, I shouldn't say weird. They're fine. They're they're just very Not in in any way connected to me. Like, they're fine. But, uh, but yeah, pretty much easy to find. Um, we're on Facebook as well. Uh, Kite and Crow games. Um, but yeah, on our website, we've got all the links to our, our web store. Um, you can also find our games on Amazon and Amazon, uh, UK, um, and Amazon Canada. And then, um, through your local game stores, which is, I I love it when folks can buy at local game stores. Mm. If you, if you can, Uh, I I love supporting that economy. Yeah. That's a,
0: that's definitely a a big, a big like bucket list item to like have something in like an actual physical store, I think would be, you know, and to be supporting like an independent vendor like that, I think is really, is really awesome. Um, well, Connor, again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Halflings, if you're listening to this and you're intrigued by the game, please go and check out uh, Coyote and Crow. Go and uh, uh, at least give them a, a follow and stuff on social media or maybe check out uh, the book and then stay tuned because we are certainly going to be playing through this game uh, on 3 Black Halflings in the near future and I'm very, very excited to do so. Uh, but before we go anywhere, Jeremy? People find you on the internet.
2: Okay, I'm gonna try and make this way quicker than the last time. Uh
0: <laughs> <laughs> good luck, my Here dude. We go. You can last, find me
2: time, last time we went on for another 25 minutes. Yes. <laughs> uh Twitter and Instagram. Or uh, excuse me, Twitter Blue Sky, Jeremy Cobb One, Cobb with Two B is the number good one. Stuff. You can find me on Instagram at the Cobbmeister. Uh you can find me on the Quantum Reactor at Q Reactor Show Ooh. on Twitter. Uh, you also can join our Discord. It is a science fiction movie review podcast. Uh, you can find our podcast wherever pods are cast. I also uh stream on Twitch at quest Live, twitch.tv slash casual quest live. Tuesdays we do Fallout New Vegas. We just started the old uh the old world blues uh DLC. Um uh, and then on Thursdays we do Deus Ex Human Revolution. Uh, Sundays, we do extra long Baldur's Gate 3 streams. And when we finish Old World Blues, we're going to switch Tuesdays as well to be Baldur's Gate 3. So it's just going to be, uh, Baldur's Gate is just going to be so wide open. Hello, yeah, you won't be able to yeah. walk anywhere for, for want of, uh, walking straight through it. It's,
3: it's really too bad you don't have a scroll effect for that because
2: that's, that's great. Yeah,
3: I love, yeah. I, I pictured on a giant <laughs> scroll. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Someone needs to animate that. Two last things. <laughs> uh, on a, uh, stream I want to shout out on <laughs> Roll for It, uh, called, uh, uh um, um, uh, Lake Marana. I uh, just forgot the name of the show I was on. Uh, playing Call of <laughs> Cthulhu. Uh, every, it, it, it does on uh, Thursdays, I think, at noon PST is when it streams. Uh, we just had episode one last week and it was fantastic. Uh, my character is a sad man. Uh, so go check that out. And then finally, <laughs> if you want to play with me, uh, do it at D3 at C. I'm going to be at D3 at C uh, this this uh, October into November, uh, leaving, I believe, October 25th, but I can't remember the date. Regardless, go to d3atc.com and sign. Sign up to play with me that's it whoa
0: thanks jeremy a tight 15 minutes this time <laughs> very well done shaved eight minutes <laughs> off baby
2: eight, <laughs> minutes. Yeah, <whoa. laughs> eight minutes let's go
0: um i am just william cartwright you can find me at jw underscore cartwright on all of my social medias which is where i'll be announcing all of the new and cool stuff that i'm doing and there is new and cool stuff i know i've been saying that for about six months but i promise there is actually stuff that i will be announcing eventually uh you can also find me on uh, games and feelings show um and and uh, which uh, I'm kind of a semi, semi-regular semi co-host of uh, the Performance Capture podcast. Uh, I'm on this season of Dark Dice, uh, playing Ajay Ogun, and I, one of my favorite characters I've ever played. And last but not least, I think I can say this now, because I they don't seem to be particularly secretive about it, so it's absolutely fine, I guess. Uh, I'm going to be on uh, Oxventure coming up, uh, I think, in September Uh, as well which is going to be really really cool we just recorded that and i'm very excited to uh get to get to show you me being a gunslinger again it felt like a little callback to tobo and that made me happy um this has been Three black halflings you can find the show at three that's the number three black halflings on all of our social medias don't forget to check out our patreon which where you get bonus episodes you can listen to this ad this episode completely ad free um, and there's a bunch of other content on there including uh, we get do shout outs we do live uh, live streams hangouts all that kind of good stuff uh, so make sure you go check us out uh, but until next week we will say so long folk. so long Shire because so gonna... hey, yeah, yeah.